Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Good morning then Matt, how are you? Pretty good and I'm pretty excited because tonight when we're doing this on Sunday night, We've got our annual councillor Christmas function, and I oh, always like to the annual council Christmas function. Now, last year you did the frisbee, didn't you? Is that yeah, right? That's right. It's not called frisbee though. It's called disc golf. It's not called frisbee golf. It's, it's we'll disc see. There's golf. my bad. I just <laughs> haven't played enough to understand the, no, no. the small level of logistics involved. We, we had some experts come along. Thank you very much to them last year, and they taught us about disc golf and made Excellent. sure that it was called disc golf. Yes. And even in past years, I used to do some cricket matches. We actually had some matches we did. Some of them were dubbo. City councillors versus O-Rock councillors. Oh, okay. And they were quite fun games. The concept that we put together for those ones was that we had, it was like a T20 match with a bit of indoor cricket rule. So everyone got to go. That's right. what I love about yeah, indoor I like cricket. that, yes. Everyone yes. gets to go. T20, you could just have two openers go out there and score lots of runs. Yeah. So we combined the two where you were out there for a certain number of overs and you rotated, etc. So that yeah. was good. And the last time we played that... David Hurley, who is now the current Governor-General, he was the New South Wales Governor at the time, and he happened to be in Dubbo the day of the match, and I took him around and introduced him to a few people and did a few things, and I said, just as an offhand comment, so we've got our annual function on tonight where we've got some matches being played, so we've got a cricket match on. He said, oh, he said, I'll come along. I invited him, right. thinking that he'd say he was too busy or couldn't yes, make it. Yes. Oh, I'll come along. And he did come along. And he, you all right? He played, he played very <laughs> well. Handy. And he did say that he used to play a bit of grade cricket back oh, in Sydney well. in his younger yeah, days. Yeah. So I was, yeah. I was very impressed with that. So Ripping this down 125k an hour outswingers or something, was he? He was batting, actually. And oh, he's, he's he was, a bit good he batter, okay. Displaying very, and he was still in his suit oh, and <laughs> set his dress shoes on out there on the, on the turf pitch. Wow. So he played very well. But tonight we've got the darts on. So we're playing some the darts. darts. Now, luckily, councils all get on well together because yes. having sharp yeah. implements around councils, <laughs> if they didn't get on well together, might be a bit ugly. We've all got darts. And, of course, we have significant prizes. I'll reveal next week what the prizes are. Right. But these are highly sought-after prizes Ooh. we've got for oh, our okay. darts. All right. So it's a yes. very competitive. There was a lot of competition last year in our disc golf, and yes. I'm sure it'll be just as competitive. And did a certain Matt Wright win last year? Was that the, uh, the end result? Who won Well, I year? can't reveal anything. I just don't think it's fair on councils oh, to be revealing sort of that. But what goes on the bus stays on the bus. If, uh, if you've heard that rumour about Matt, then you can... Oh, he'll tell me anyway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some councils who are talking up a big game for Ooh, darts. for the darts. Well, there'd be a few blokes there, I'm sure, to spend a few of those misspent years at university and probably in a few pubs over the years, shooting a few darts, knocking back a few cold ones. And not just blokes. There's a bit of talking oh. up from some of the females. Is that right? Well. Okay. Yeah, all right. So. Yes, that's right. We're all gender around here these days. That's yeah, exactly right. right. So yeah. it should be fun anyway. It's a good chance to get together and just relax and fairly low-key affairs, but it's just good to be with just the councillors and, and their partners or Wonderful. their partners close family come along as well and just to sit around and say well done on another successful year and looking forward to the nine months of next year because of course 14th of September next year. The elections yeah. next year. Well mm, you guys yeah. have a great night tonight as well. Thank you. Enjoy. So look uh, just in regards to the first little question I want to sort of talk to you about today and the first area of focus. Um, during the week there was the official opening of the RFS Aviation Centre of Excellence. Now this sounds pretty good. The, uh, talk us through what actually happened here. Well, it is absolutely fantastic, and it's not necessarily open to the public for tours, but I'm sure if you wanted to have a look at through out there, that you could contact the RFS and ask mm. to go along and have a look. But 
it's probably the whole precinct that I get excited about out there. Mm. And I go way back to 2015 when there was some discussion at the time around the Rural Fire Service, the RFS headquarters in Sydney. Mm. There was some problem, and I can't remember exactly what the problem was. It might have been their lease was finishing up or there was some zoning change or some reason that they had to move the headquarters. And so we said, rural fire service, mm. that should be in a rural mm. area. Troy Grant was the Deputy Premier at the time. Of course, he was our local member. So I remember having some discussions with Troy about that, saying, why don't you move the RFS headquarters out to Dubbo? And in fact, if you go back from a formal perspective, on the 25th of May 2015, we had a formal council resolution that said that should the New South Wales Rural Fire Services headquarters be required to relocate from Sydney Olympic Park, council make representations to pursue and encourage the relocation of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service headquarters to Dubbo. So oh, right, okay. We, so back in 2015. That's that right. So we it. formally said that to the state government at the time and yeah. said, hey, you should move it. We had some further discussions with Troy and Troy said that there were some logical reasons, more around logistics and mm. location, that the RFS headquarters needed to be in Sydney still. Mm. And whether you accept those or not, that was the story from the state government. But he did say there's some potential for some other things to be out there in Dubbo. So mm. I'll keep working on those for you. And so we kept pursuing it. And in fact, we had a, another resolution that went from the council meeting on the 26th of April 2016, which mm. again was still pushing that same angle. Yeah where we are today. So that started this whole process. And and having said that, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, mm. their base was established back out there in 1999. So there was a little was bit there. It was already set up there. So, so the Royal Flying Doctor Service was the first group to set up out there. That's the and first. And the RFS were the second group, were they? Well, the Royal Flying Doctor Service was certainly there early. And, mm. and when I say the first group, or when you say the first group, in this they precinct They didn't have a training centre or anything out there, though. No, no. So the Royal Flying Doctor Service was basically their base. So they needed mm. somewhere for their planes, and they needed somewhere for their logistics. So that made sense again, and you've got Broken Hill as well as, as Dubbo. Yeah. And so that whole area there, there was kind of an idea, a vision, if you like, from Dubbo City Council to keep developing that, and it took a while to get started. But then when you look at today, we've now got... The RFS Dubbo headquarters, yep. you've got the RFS training centre there, so mm. you've actually got a lot of training that occurs there. Now with this RFS Aviation Centre of Excellence So there, what's the difference there? Well, I'll, I'll come to that one in a moment. Yeah. I'll come back to there. We've also got SES has got a, a base out there. VRA has got a base out there. You've also got a house that's, when I say a house, it's a demonstration or a training house that's used for fires. Mm. And we went out to that opening there last year, or maybe it was earlier this year, and they basically can fill it with fake smoke. They can have people going in in their breathing apparatus. So that'll be used by RFS and by the normal Red Fire Brigade. Yep. So again, another facility out so it's, there. So it's a generic type operation in that sense. It's, it's used by multi-services yeah, out right. there. And that's one of the great things about having all these different services, all these emergency <clears throat> services out there. You can share some of those facilities out there. Mm. On top of all these things, we've got 124 beds out there. And what I've heard from different Operators is that, that a privately funded operation? That one, this or? is all state government. This so, is all, oh, wow, okay. All so the state government has set this up and run the bedding as well in the accommodation section. Correct. And I actually was a little bit disappointed initially when they talked about the fact they're having accommodation because I thought all these people coming to Dubbo for training, fantastic for our economy, mm. then all that money injected into our economy, but people are staying out there. And, oh, they're not coming into Dubbo as much as they should be. But then one of the pubs, and maybe more now, but one of the pubs got very clever and they started sending a shuttle service out there uh, at night time yes. saying, if you want to come in, yeah, you want to come in for a meal, come in for a meal. Yeah. And even if you want to have a, a beer or two, you wouldn't have too many because you've got training the next day. Mm. 
And so they run this shuttle service out and back. Yeah, so very yeah. entrepreneurial from them, Absolutely. from their perspective. Very yeah. good. So you've got all these people. Now, when I talk to some of the operators, they say that those training or the beds, if you like, the accommodation is booked out months in advance because you've got so many training courses. So Monday yeah, right. to Friday, yeah. you've typically got 124, but maybe more than that, training all the time. It's now, like a little village, isn't it, really? It yeah. is. That's right. Yeah. You've also got a police training academy there. And if I go way back to Stan Single, when Stan Single, he's retired now, but Stan, Stan Single, Single, he used to be the Iran local commander, so the commander for this area of oh, police. Okay, right. And he had this vision because he used to get frustrated that his staff from around this region, so Stan was responsible for the Iran command, so that goes out to sort of Burke and out around this whole area here. Mm. When he needed his staff, his police, to keep all their credentials up to date. So, for example, you've got to use your firearm in a certain process. I don't know the exact details, but say once a year, you've got to update your firearm and actually use it in a firing range. Mm. They had to go to Goulburn. Mm. So I was going to say, because don't Goulburn, do they still do that down there? They or still do the initial training in Goulburn. Okay. I think 16 weeks they do in Goulburn when you first train to become a police officer. Don't quote me on these numbers, but I think mm. at 16 weeks they do in at home environment, so a, a virtual environment to learn about things, and then they physically go 16 weeks okay. at Goulburn. Yeah. But for the update, so what Stan was telling me many years ago was that let's say he had a police officer in Burke. To do their update on, say, their firearms, which probably takes them an hour, they really take three days. They've got to travel from Burke yep. Yep. to Goulburn, and then they'd stay overnight. Then they do their training that they've got to do, their update the next day, and yes. then they'd probably travel back that night or maybe the As next day. It'd be three days in the process of a day. Out, so that's that's right. right. So yeah. Stan yeah. had this vision that we could do some of these updates out here in Dubbo. Okay. And he had some ideas. There was another building that he looked at many years ago. But in the end, it all gained momentum and suddenly you've got this whole police academy. And when mm. I talked to some of the police during the week about this particular training facility, not only will we have all the police from around this area come and do their updates there, they said some of the specialties they'll have there, they'll actually have people from Sydney coming out and doing some of their updates there. So yeah. I don't know enough details about that yet because it hasn't opened that still under construction. Yeah. But the RFS... It's very exciting though, isn't it? it is. think about it. That's right. The RFS Aviation Centre of Excellence yeah. is an area where you can do some training. And I've been out before to have a look at it during the construction and then during the week when the opening was on. But one of the examples one of the RFS staff gave me was he said when he did his training and they were doing things, for example, learning how to winch people up into a helicopter. So you're yep. out on the fire ground, you're stuck, you're surrounded by fire, so they send a helicopter in to rescue you. Hmm. You've got to have a winch operator, someone that then gets on the end of that winch and goes down and picks you up and collects you and brings you yeah. up. That'd just be a costly exercise if you're hiring a helicopter every day to sort of come in and do that. Well, I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of $1,000 an hour <laughs> while the helicopter hovers, <laughs> plus the risk. So they, yeah. they might put it yeah, well, that's right. 50 metres above the ground again. I don't yeah. know the exact details, but let's say it's 50 metres above the ground yeah. and they're practicing that. So they, they're training people. They're going through a bit of classroom training. And now mm. we're out in the field. You've got this noisy, windy helicopter mm. above you and you're doing the training for the first time, yeah. learning how to connect on and winch down, etc. When And so the expense of that, the risk of that. Mm. When you now look at how they'll do the training, what you've got is a couple of things that are very clever out there at this Aviation Centre of Excellence. The first thing is a huge stand that you actually go and get hooked onto as a winch and it winches you a metre or two above right. the ground. Is this so an indoor facility type Indoor setup? facility, that's wow. right. So okay. if something goes wrong there, then you might fall a metre and you might hit your ankle or sprain your mm. ankle. You're not going to mm. die falling from that. No, but you can right. do that multiple times. Wow. And obviously you're not spending a lot of money having a helicopter hovering above the ground. Mm. And then you move over to another section yep. and you actually have 
the cabin of one of the helicopters they use right. and you put a VR headset on and you've got the same winch wire. So then you sit in the cabin and you look down and I put the VR headset yeah. on. It's pretty impressive. You look down and you're looking at as if you're winching someone up and you've got the winch wire in your hand. So you're doing all the things you wow. would do in the copter yeah, yeah. and then get used to that. Just like I can see this is a tourism attraction, to be honest. <laughs> I wouldn't mind going out there and paying a few bucks to do this. Well, you're yeah, probably right. They're not designed for that, but you're no, probably right. fantastic. So you've got all that training. So they told me now what they'll do with their recruits is they'll put them through all this training indoors where it's safe, yep. where it's very inexpensive to run. Obviously, it costs money to set it up, but inexpensive yeah. to run it. And then when they've got all the training, they're all pretty happy, they'll still do the final certification in a real helicopter out yeah. in the field, but they think it'll be much safer and much cheaper. Wow. They had another couple of helicopters set up there mm. where you go out and you actually – pretend you're on the fire ground. So you, you can load up anywhere in the world and basically be on the fire ground and you're looking through your VR headset, yeah. you're looking down at the fire and they can simulate different fires. And then you'll have the the RJ85 is the large aerial tanker that yeah. we've got here in Dubbo. And that RJ85, you can see down there doing the water bombing. You've got the bird dog, which is a small plane that goes above the fire ground to try and spot the fires. So you're looking around. As you wow. move your headset around or your head around, it's this going to... This is the world's to greatest amusement park for me. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like so much fun. It is state-of-the-art. All this, this stuff is absolutely state-of-the-art. Yeah. So again, you can do all this training and learn how you are on the fire ground. Here so in then Dubbo. Then, that's right. When you get out there in the real world, you're actually doing yeah. all of this. Now, the minister came along. Minister Jihad Dib was the Minister for Emergency Services. Yep. And he came along and did the official opening. And he said a couple of things that resonated well with me. Firstly, he said that in the past, what we used to do in this country and in this state mm. was we'd look at what people were doing overseas and then say, oh, they've got this training center set up or they've got this facility. Let's have a look at that and we should copy that. Mm. And he said, that's nice, but why are we copying what other people are doing? Why aren't we doing it first? Mm. Why are we waiting for someone else? And he talked about the fact that this aviation center of excellence is world-class, first in the nation. And he said, no, I guarantee there'll be people from around the world mm. looking at this. And he said, some people talk about the idea of, oh, well, no one else has done it, then we shouldn't be the ones doing it. And he said, yeah. well, that is really a… a well, it's a backward a, sort of way of thinking, isn't it? It is a backward way. Yeah. And he didn't use those exact words, but it's certainly a, a, a probably flawed way of thinking. Mm. We'll just wait till someone else mm. does it and then we'll copy that. I can't see a bloke like Bill Gates or one of those sort of fellows there making that sort of a comment. No, that's right. So he was very impressed with the fact that what we've got here is state-of-the-art is certainly leading in Australia, probably world leading as well. And mm. he said, I guarantee that people already are looking at what we've got here and looking how they can replicate mm. what we've got. Now, there was a conference out there a few months ago before it was open, but I went out there and this was an international conference and talked mm. to a few people from around the world, literally from America, from the UK, I spoke to some people. Yeah. And they were keen to see how this all developed and what we ended up with yeah. because, again, they wanted to look at what we had and to see how it's they could replicate that. Yeah. So that whole area out there is just going ahead in leaps and bounds. And, again, what we've got there now is fantastic. So yeah. on the back of it, said that Royal Flying Doctor Service back in 1999, and there was uh, an RFS district headquarters, I think 2008 that first opened, but it really started to gain momentum from 2015 when things started to change quite quickly there with all of these different training components. I'm actually in discussions at the moment with another emergency services, which I can't talk about yet, but yep. already we're in discussions with another bit of land out there where essentially they want to develop some of their further training as well. So all very exciting, all things I think that we should be very proud of in Dubbo, but more importantly, it's bringing people on a constant basis into our economy. That's oh, wonderful. Now, yesterday, Matt, uh, you had the privilege, I'd suggest, in regards to this situation, to go out uh, on the invitation of Commissioner Brenton Charlton 
who would be involved with the VRA Rescue of New South Wales here, to the official launch and commissioning of some new rescue vehicles and enhanced specialist rescue capabilities. The modern world with some of these vehicles and things that they have now it must be so impressive to see what uh, what's out there right now, especially when it comes to this type of stuff, where they're out there sort of saving and helping us out, uh, do our level best every single day, but they're out there saving the planet, saving the world and saving us from fires and disasters and all the rest. Well, the personnel, one of the quotes I often hear when I attend these functions is that the personnel we have there are incredibly brave and doing mm. some wonderful things for fellow humans, and a lot of these people are volunteers, mm. but the quote that I often hear is that while the rest of us are running away from an event, these guys are running, mm. guys and girls are running towards an event. Yeah. And yeah. that's exactly, it is, because you, you see a fire or you see an incident that happens and it goes, quick, get away, and we all run away, mm. and these people are saying, right, let's go that's and see my what we do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. And so, and, and Brenton Charlton, he's relatively new mm. in this particular role okay. as commissioner. I've met Brenton a few times, and I'm quite impressed with Brenton. He's uh, certainly done, doing a good job with the VRA and really trying to modernise the VRA. This mm. has started as a volunteer rescue association. Then you do often have volunteers running it and doing it in their spare time. It's professional, but I think what they're trying to do is really lift the level of professionalism mm, in it. Mm. And and you want to give them the best uh, vehicles and the best capabilities to actually to do their job effectively too. Yeah, that's right. And there's a great example actually out at the RFS training centre, which we've just been talking about. There's an old fire engine out there, an old RFS mm. fire, I'm not sure if they call fire engines, but fire truck. And you look yep. at that, and I've talked to some of the people who are using some of the modern trucks there, and they look at this old truck and they go, wow, how did those guys fight fires? It was the best at the time, yep. but going back many years, yes. so obviously our new capa- or new vehicles have got some great capabilities. And yep. again, this is this whole process where you're just constantly seeing updates, constantly seeing mm. new devices, new vehicles. I, I find it quite fascinating, and I always say at these functions that I love the technology on here. I think it's fascinating. I hope mm. it's never used. Yes. Of course, yes. it will be used, and that's the unfortunate part. Mm. And and VRA when when there's a car accident, for example, you've oh, got first people responders out there. a lot of the time, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. They're, they're doing rescues. They're pulling people out of cars. They're looking at some pretty horrific situations. Yeah. But the, the times that we rely on some of these services, and that's the thing that gets me, if I'm going to have an accident, an incident, a disaster, an emergency anywhere mm. in the world, mm. then I'd prefer to have it here mm. than anywhere else. I don't know anywhere else in the world that has the same capabilities that we've well, got here. particularly after our previous conversation as well, the, the, the amount of training that's going on in this area and the amount of people that's in this area right now who are fully trained to do this sort of stuff is amazing. Yeah, yeah that's right. So anyway, have a look out. You'll see some of those photos for some of that new equipment. I'm sure that'll be in the media this week and just see some of those new vehicles and some of the, the new rescue capabilities there. Quite impressive. Sounds good. Ah, this one's a little bit close to my heart, this one, actually, Matt, because uh, I did happen to, during the week, uh, I'm off right now on a bit of medical leave with dealing with own sort of stuff, as people know, um, and my daughter happened to be off work, and she said, Dad, let's go down to the Aldobo Jail. Let's go down there, because they're having a launch right now in regards to a lot of new cool things that are happening down there. There's a new touchscreen, and there's a, a new... Um, I suppose like a 3D rendered digital map with video and audio that's uh, all part of it now as well. And uh, so I said, yeah, let's, let's rock and roll. So let's go down there and we'll check this out. Now, the reason I do have a bit of a vested interest is because actually I happen to be one of the little actors in there in the back there. And uh, so I was pretty keen to see how I came up on the screen. I think I've lost about uh, 10 kilos since that because I must admit I uh, <laughs> had a bit of extra weight back in those days. But it was uh, fantastic. My goodness. And I happened to see you down there. You were down there as well, obviously, as part of the launch. What did you think of it? 
Well, I was part of the launch, but I didn't get asked to be in the videos. I'm, I'm a bit jealous that you well, got asked to be in the videos. I don't videos. know. I think you had to be over 105 kilos at the time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and you're nowhere near that. <laughs> well, I, I didn't actually get to see. I haven't seen the videos yet. Right, but I'm right. keen to have a look at those. But there was a few things happening on the day, and, and I did see you there, and, and I'm keen to see and hear more about the actual yes. videos that you did. Yes. But very briefly, there were a couple of things happening at the same time. There's a new exhibition there. Now, keep in mind... People that live in Dubbo Regional Council, local government area, can get into the jail for free. Isn't that a big point? That we is. probably need to push more. Yeah, so, Dubbo right. people out there, you get in for free. 2830, you get in for free. To well, go it's to more the jail. than 2830. It used to be called Prisoner 2830. Oh, right, yeah, but yeah. But now that we've got Wellington part of Dubbo, Of course, that's right, It's yes. called the Inmates Program. So, it's the Dubbo Regional Council <laughs> I like Inmates. That's like it. good. And exactly as you found when you went down with your daughter, mm-hmm. you just show that you're living in the Dubbo Regional Council LGA, and they yeah. say, come on in, sir. Now, that was something that an idea that we came up with back in old Dubbo City Council because yeah. we actually looked at how many people came through from, in those days, 2830. Mm. There weren't a lot because most people had seen it at some stage, so they didn't keep going through. And I remember talking to our staff at the time saying, well, if we let people in for free from Dubbo, it's not going to hurt our income that much. But what it might do is people might be encouraged to bring their friends along. Mm. The VFR market, the visiting friends and relatives tourism market in Dubbo, typically is worth anywhere from, say, 30 to 35% of our overall tourism. Okay. So yep. the idea of this, when we first started years ago, and it was one of the ideas I came up with to, to help boost our tourism mm. back when I was mayor before, was people come along and, oh, why don't we go down to the jail? Yep. I've been there 10 times in the last year, but it doesn't matter. I get in for free each mm. time, but mm. I'll take you in and show you around. Yes. What a great thing to be able to do. The other thing is when you've got a new exhibition like we've got now, yep. I encourage people to go along and have a look at it. You Absolutely. can go for free. Look, you know, uh, I had the pleasure going back probably would be four years ago now. I was over in America, San Francisco, and went and did Alcatraz. Right. Alcatraz, of course, for those people who don't know, they must really be under a mushroom, you know about Alcatraz, but of course it's, it's a prison, prison island, a very famous prison island, Al Capone was out there and these type of things. So some of the inmates, it's probably the main reason why it probably gets the, uh, the interest it does. Now the thing that amazed me about Alcatraz is that it is the number one government-based tourist attraction in America. Number one in America. In America, it's Statue number one. Statue of Liberty doesn't beat no, it. No, it, it's number one. Alcatraz. Wow. They were saying the fact Alcatraz is number one. It's 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 the the biggest one that people go to, wow. and it is it's absolutely chockers. Like yeah, there's boats going back and forth with hordes of hundreds on it all the time. It's an amazing place to so and see. But the thing that struck me about Alcatraz is that when you go around Alcatraz, no one speaks because you have these little audio booklets on. So you put the audio headset on, and you go around, and no one speaks. Just listen to the audio. When you walk around, though, it's not very interactive. It's it, you sort of you walk around, you see the cells, you look inside, and you see where, where the Birdman was, and you see the escape scenario of the famous from the movie, and you get all of that. It's all it's all very cool, but it's very eerie, of course, because no one speaks. Mm. The big thing I, I find though, when we come back here to Aldo Jail, and this is when I went through the other day, and it really struck me, it's almost like a boutique version of Alcatraz. And it has, right now, an incredible level of interactivity in it. And this is the big thing you don't get at Alcatraz. You can actually go down the Aldobo Jail and you can go and you look into the cells. Now, at Alcatraz, you can only look into the cells. They've got all the things set up there and they've got where the, the guys were doing the paintings and they've got the, you know, where they had the room where the guy escaped. But you can't go into it. You can only oh. sort of look at it from, through the bars. Aldobo Jail, they've got all the interactive stuff. They've got the beds they've got set out there. They've got people trying to climb through escapes. You can walk around it. You can actually go into the cells. And I found that was quite amazing. I didn't realise that was the case. So it's very interactive from that perspective. You add now this 3D interactive guide, which has little videos. So you stop in little places. You do a little download on, your, you know, on, the, on the phone and you get the little map up there and you wander around. You follow the map. 
you press the button, there'll be a little audio file for where you are, or you press a button, there'll be a little video file of where you are. And again, it's incredibly interactive because you're getting to actually be in the space. You can walk around, you can touch the things, most things anyway. You can be in there and sort of check it all out and watch the little video, listen to the audio file. Very different to Alcatraz. The other thing, of course, is the big new 3D what do they call it? No, sorry, the, uh, the touchscreen. Touch yeah. Touchscreen there in the hangman's quarters is extraordinary. Um, it, it's quite eerie anyway just to go into there. And now when you go on this touchscreen and you press on the different faces and the stories come up and it's it's magic. It's it's as interactive of any sort of stuff you've seen anywhere in the world. Mm. So, yeah, for Dubbo locals, you know, who may still think, oh, it's just the IWJR, so we've been sitting there for years. No, guys, I can tell you now, this is a really boutique, interactive, fabulous facility that we've got here. It's world class. Um, it's as good as anything that's out there of that type of nature. They won a number of silver awards in the last little bit. I'm back in the fact that they're going to win a gold award next year. <laughs> so your video, tell me more about your video. Well, so that's when, probably why it's going to get the gold award. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously. <laughs> so the videos, so when you click on the, again, I haven't done that yet, and I do yes. apologise, but when you click on the video, are you enacting scenes that yes. might be like a, a scene as if you are in the jail back in the yeah. last century or the century that, that's before? That's exactly right. Like I'm basically playing the part of a warden there, the warden of the jail. Right. And so I'm, I'm there pretending the fact that I'm the warden and there's a new prisoner who's come in. So I have to sort of go through that first process of inducting the prisoner into the jail. Right. And okay. so it's me dressed up in uniform, the old day sort of stuff, and there's the guy who's uh, the bloke who plays the prisoner, and he's all dressed up in his, uh, actually more and more of a, I suppose more of a suit because you just come straight from the courthouse, right. straight into there to go to the place. Okay. But you're actually in the room. This is the great thing is you actually stand in the room where the video takes place as yeah, well. Right. And that again sort of adds the interactive nature of it. Yeah. And so the history of the jail is fantastic. What I find fascinating is 23rd of November 1849 was when, of course, Dubbo was declared a village, gazetted a village. Mm, mm. 1847 was our first jail. So two years before we were even a yeah, village, we had a jail. It's amazing, isn't it? That jail there, actually eight people were hung. Most people are aware of that. 1877 was when the first person was hung through to the last person in 1905. Wow. But what's fascinating is that people were still using that as a jail or our community was still using that as a jail, as a normal jail, mm. up until 1966. Wow. So that means people not a lot older than you and I That's that exactly live in right. our community yes. Yes. were here when that was a real, normal, operating jail. Yeah. In 1966, it's quite fascinating. And you go into some of those cells, like we were down there the other day and it was probably about 36 degrees. There's no air conditioning in those cells. Yeah. yeah only, right. Oh my God, how do you survive in this place? Yeah, yeah. And so 1974 it was turned into a tourist attraction. Is it right? Yes. And which okay. didn't take long from where it was stopped being a jail. Mm. And so we've got our 50th anniversary next year. But the other one, the other part that I thought was worth mentioning is the new exhibition there, which is called The Life of Crime Portraits of Repeat Offenders. Is this the one that Chris has done? The Correct. Yeah. yeah. So Chris Animat has done a lot of the research for this and he's, he's actually employed by council but he does some fantastic work in the background i think 17 years he's been working there oh, so he wow, really yeah. loves he's very jail. passionate still about it chris absolutely now he went and did a, a huge amount of research and found repeat offenders and found photos as they went through the jail system mm. because typically what was happening is as they entered the jail system they take a photo right. and then the next time they enter the jail system they take a photo yep. now again we're talking about very old days, very old photos, mm. and people didn't take as many photos. The The stat I read recently was that with digital cameras now, we are taking more photos each year, dramatically more photos each year with digital cameras than we have in the entire history of film photography. Is that right? Yeah, it so, would not surprise, yes. <laughs> that's right. So obviously he didn't have a lot of photos back then, yes. but when you look at these, and so what Chris went out and did was he found prisoners that had gone through Old Dubbo Jail, 
They didn't have to go to Old Dubbo Jail every time. They had to have been there at least once mm. and then found photos each time they entered a prison. So there's multiple photos of some of these repeat offenders and you look at how they've aged wow. much quicker than maybe the years. So you look at yes. some photos that go, that photo, that photo, wow, he's aged between that, those two time frames and it might be two years apart or three yes. years apart. Yes. So there's an exhibition there. I suspect that, and that's in our temporary exhibition space, I yep. suspect that once we've put that exhibition on for a period of time, there'll be other centres across the state that'll mm. be very interested. There might have been mm. some other jails that might want to have it as part Absolutely. of an exhibition there. Yeah, yeah. So that's part of it. But Chris has also put together a book which does the same thing, shows some of these photos oh, and fabulous. how these people yes. are ageing yeah. through the time. So that's absolutely worth looking at, absolutely worth going and seeing that new exhibition and, and buying the book. The touchscreen that you mentioned there, so there's a, another area called the Gallows Gallery. Right, yes. And these are all the people that were on death row. 32 people were on death row. Eight of those were hung. Two people were acquitted and 22, does that add up? 22, mm. that'd be right, mm. were commuted. So basically they decided it wasn't a serious enough crime for them to be hung. Yep. Now when you look at some of those, and I've taken family and friends through, and it's quite fascinating, before the touchscreen, what you had was a screen with a picture of each person where there was a picture and just some few basic details about mm. the crime they committed and, and when they went to court, for example. So I found two in there that, just gives you an idea of how things have changed. Mm. So there was one person on death row for bestiality. Mm. Now, if someone went before a court for bestiality now, I imagine, I hope it would be pretty embarrassing for them yep. and it would be something that it would be hard for them to turn up to their next coffee meeting with a few friends and yep. they go, didn't you just go to court for bestiality? Yeah, that's right. But you wouldn't be on death row mm. for bestiality. Mm. And then the other one that I find fascinating in there is that you've got two males who went to court on the same day, mm. 1875, on, on the same day, and they were charged with sodomy. Right. Now, I can only assume that they were boyfriends mm. and someone caught them in the act of what they were doing as boyfriends and then they were on death row. Now, again, Is that right? Was it death row back then for that? Wow. Death row. Now, they, they weren't hung in the end, but yeah. just the fact that you like boys and you end up in a relationship with another boy and then you're on death row. Wow, just yeah. The attitudes, the the way things have changed. Now, yep. that's not that long ago, 1875. Sure, yep. it's a few years ago, but it's not that long no, ago. No, it's not. That's right. In the history of man, that's 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 right. Blip. So less than 150 years ago, mm. people were on death row for being in a homosexual relationship. So mm. you just get an idea how things have changed. Now, when you look at some of the other ones, there are murders, there are rapes, there are other violent crimes that you probably would be, not in Australia because we don't have the death penalty, but in America, for example, yep. or in Australia might have life sentences. So there are other crimes, I'm sure, that justified at with the sentencing at the time to be mm. on death row, but some of them you just find fascinating. They do start to scratch your head. The, the really interesting part, though, that touchscreen you mentioned there, speaking to Chris, and just the amount of data he's been able to access. So mm. he's been able to find old photos, old prison records, newspaper clippings. So when you now, rather than just one of those pictures that you see yes, really a little bit yes. of That was one of the things I really noticed with that was that they had old court documents and all yeah. those type of things set up there. The amount of yeah. research Chris has done this has been incredible. incredible. Yeah. Someone asked him at the opening at the launch, how long did it take you to do it? And he said, well, I've been here for 17 years and I've pretty much been doing this since day one. That's now, right. Not focusing years, on it every yeah. minute of the day, but yeah. certainly uh, I think it's a, a bit of a passion there. Mm. But you then can look at each of these different documents. You can zoom in on them. You can look at the newspaper clippings. Mm. So it is a really interactive exhibition. So absolutely I'd encourage people to go along and keep an ear out for some of the 50th anniversary celebrations mm. next year from when it was turned into a tourist attraction because I think that'll be pretty exciting oh, as absolutely. well. absolutely. As they say, do yourself a favour and get down there. Now, Matt, Rio Tinto, one of Australia's uh, biggest mining companies, um, you had a meeting with them during the week. Uh, are they looking at 
putting a mine in here around this area, or what's what's happening? What's the reason for the meeting? No, not a mine in here. They've got a Scandium mine that they've bought out at Tottenham, and, and this isn't confidential. This is all public information from Rio Tinto's perspective. Okay. And they've got to have somewhere where they process that. Now, I think one of the problems that I have in Australia when we do mining is sometimes we take the iron ore and we put that on trains and we put it onto boats and ship it overseas and then we buy the products back that are being mm. produced Seems out of that. It's quite silly, doesn't it? That's right. Well, and it comes down to that manufacturing and mm. the expense of manufacturing in Australia. So it's a bit disappointing because you'd hope that taking that natural resource that we're lucky enough to have, we could do a lot more with it. Yeah. We're seeing a little bit more. We're some companies are trying to process things a little bit further, and that's exactly the case with Rio Tinto. They're saying, well, we've got this mine at Tottenham. Mm. Scandium is the main thing they'll produce from that, the main thing they'll mine from that. Scandium? Scandium. Okay, I've never heard of that. What is what is that? Is that part of the iron ore processing side of things? Or no, I think you'd use scandium more with aluminium. I think okay. you'd actually mix it with aluminium to create different, slightly different alloys that okay. have got different properties. Yep. I'm not an expert on scandium, but that would be the Sounds the like you know a lot more about it than I do. Anyway. <laughs> well, that would be the main <laughs> thing I would think of that yep. you'd use scandium for would be mixing it with aluminium for different alloys. Okay. There might be some other uses as well. So they've got that, but they're mm. keen to actually create a processing plant. Now, they've looked at Tottenham, but just to try and find all the associated logistics and the employment – around that, they're probably not looking at doing it at Tottenham. They're thinking that they'll probably take the raw ore from Tottenham and bring it across to somewhere else, maybe Dubbo. Mm. And that was the reason for the meeting, was just to discuss what the future is for Dubbo, how this would fit in with the overall market, what land we've got available, what industrial land we've got available, all the rest of it. Mm. So they were quite impressed with everything they saw and quite impressed with the industrial options they've got here in Dubbo as such. Mm. But what would be great about that is that you would be producing product that would be very much a final or close to a final product, you'd probably employ 70 people in a processing plant, maybe a few more than that. And again, it's the highly skilled professional people would be employing. And I think mm. that was their main thing with Tottenham. They weren't sure they'd be able to attract and build all that facility there. Whereas Dubbo, they had the confidence they could do all that. So that'd be another good thing. Yeah. It only sounds like 70 people, but ultimately the higher skill level and the, the better skills we've got in our community, I think that is better for our whole community. So well, that's right. Yeah. And, and yeah, 70 people brings families and connections exactly and right. uh, all those type of things as well. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it, it's probably a couple of years away from being built, but it's again interesting to see that companies like Rio Tinto are looking at Dubbo to see how they can keep developing or how they can mm. help us keep developing Dubbo. Yeah, absolutely. One of our little hidden gems here in Dubbo is the fact that we have uh, the University of Sydney one of their medical centre operations set up here in Dubbo. Um, it looks like you went out and had a bit of a visit and maybe you took a few of the councillors with you, did you? Was that right or what happened there? Yeah, I've been out a few times out there and one of the councillors was talking to another one of the staff members out there at Sydney Uni at a recent function and just talking about the whole campus there and all the facilities there and that particular councillor said, look, I haven't been out there to have a look. Can I come along and have a look? And so a visit was arranged. Yep. And so we went out there to have a look around. So councillors were invited along just to look at the facilities there. And it's just, it's amazing what's there. And it's amazing how good the facilities are there mm. and the advantages that the students have from a, a education point of view. So we have, it's, it's progressing through the years, but basically 24 students start in year one and then there's 24 students in year two, three and four. Mm. We used to have years three and four only, yep. but now we've got all four years. And I think the students 
now will be going to year three next year, so yep. the third year of that program as such. So by two years' time, we'll have 96 students You're full program there. running, haven't you? <laughs> well, that's, that's right. Unreal. And what's great about that is that I know one example that one of the students is going to third year next year, mm. he was a student that went to school with one of my kids, and I yep. won't mention his name just to save embarrassment of him, but, <laughs> but he went off, got his degree, he was quite happy doing what he was doing, he was yeah. back here in Dubbo. And then when this program opened up, he said, well, I wouldn't mind having a look at that and put the application in. They normally get about 200 applications. Mm. Was successful as the one of the first 24 that went in there. And I remember talking to him one day at one of the functions I was at, and he said he hadn't ever com- contemplated medicine, hadn't mm. really thought of that as a career. Yep. But when it was here on his doorstep, he thought, well, maybe I could do that. Yeah. So it means that you're going to get people from regional areas. I guarantee that particular person will probably stay somewhere regional, whether yep. it be Dubbo or not. I'm not sure, but probably be somewhere regional. Yep. But you're getting people from regional areas being educated as doctors, mm. but you're also mm. getting people, and I, I meet all these students each year when they come out. Mm. I've met students from WI, I've met students from Singapore, I've met students from Victoria, all over the place. Mm. Once they get a taste of regional living, yep. maybe they find they spend four years here and they, they find a relationship they're in, and next thing you know, they settle down a little yes, bit. And that's how it works. All that's these right. wonderful yes. things. Yes. So I think in general, we'll see more regional doctors if we have them educated regionally. But the facility up there is fantastic. Yeah. And I spoke to one doctor, one of the professors up there, one of the, the people, the lecturers, and he was saying that when they started their degree, back when he did his degree initially, mm-hmm. they were given a cadaver. And that was it for your degree. There's your person. Here's Jimmy. Yep. You keep him through your whole degree. As we're working on the bones and the leg, then mm-hmm. that'll be what you'll cut apart and work on Jimmy. And as you're working on the stomach, you'll cut that apart. So you basically have this relationship with your own cadaver mm. through your entire degree. Mm. Now, they don't do that. But more than that, when you look in one of the rooms that we looked at there, just seeing all the different models of the body parts and everything that's put together there, it's so much better than having just one body to work with because I can show so many different examples. So the technology there is fantastic. The part that I love, the room that I love, or the multiple of them, they have simulator rooms. And in the simulator rooms, you walk in and you'd probably be maybe second year, but at least a little bit in second year, but certainly third and a lot of fourth year, you'd be using this. So there's a patient on the bed. You walk in like a, it looks like a normal hospital room. And then behind a screen that you mm. can't see through, just a one-way glass screen, you have the professors, the lecturers, who make things happen to this particular simulator yep. on the bed. So it'll be high blood pressure or it'll be hard. So it's all sort of set up there for them, but it's all simulated for them. All simulated. So they walk in and they don't know what the problem is, and yep. so they've got to start analysing, taking readings, putting – you can actually put in drips, you can put wow, you know, all, yeah. all sorts of things on these. You can, you can actually do yep. mouth-to-mouth type thing or, or you know, do yeah. mouth-to-mouth anymore. Heart I suppose the doctors and the professor can be playing around with heart rates and all those sort of things. Well, I did say that. I said, do you have some fun sometimes and put together a bunch of ailments that wouldn't be like us? So we try not to do that unless we've got a know-it-all student who really, <laughs> really we, we want to just show that maybe right. the things yeah, that can yeah. pop up sometimes. But that process there, mm. one of the examples they gave where this is better for them out here than in Sydney mm. is the students, they said in particular year four, the year four students are in that room every week. Once a week, they're in that room going through the simulations. They said in Sydney, mm. they haven't got anywhere near the same ratio of simulation rooms to students. Wow. So the kids down there might get there once a month. Yeah. So again, and this is where you can learn all the things you like in the textbook. When you come and have to apply all that, 
pull this stuff out of the database of your mind yeah. and be able to apply that in the real world, that's a real challenge. And we've some doctors get that right and some doctors don't. You know, the thing is right now here in Dubbo, we've just got some of the greatest types of facilities in our medicine. You know, uh, having now sort of doing my own little cancer journey and working through it, uh, having now a PET scan facility set up here in Dubbo is, is just wonderful. Having the University of Sydney set up there for the medical students and having all these type of facilities you're talking about, it's just extraordinary. So we are sitting at cutting edge. Well, more than that, they talked again, and I have talked about this one before, but they've got a research project they're doing at the moment. Over $6 million they've got in this particular grant for mm. this where they're looking at wound management and how they can do wound management remotely. Then they're looking at scanning faces where they can pick up heart rate and blood pressure yeah, right. just from video of someone's face. This so is the research element of it as that's well. That's right. So this is sort of not research, really synonymous with what you probably do out here, but they're bringing research in out here as well. Well, this is the thing. The research is being done by the, the actual doctors out here at the moment. So that's fantastic. It is a good facility and not enough people know mm. that we've got the University of Sydney School of Rural Health right here in Dubbo on our doorstep. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I do do is I go along and talk to the students at the beginning of each year and I say to them, I want you out there with teams, touch footy teams, netball teams, disc yep. golf teams, whatever you want, yep. put that together and I, I every year volunteer that I, via council, will pay for your uniform. I want mm. University of Sydney, and I say the same for CSU, I want mm. Charles Street University out there on the sporting fields around Dubbo yep. and each year I'll normally get one or two teams take me up on the offer and uh, again, I'm quite happy for Dubbo ratepayers to contribute to that. I'm talking about usually yeah. that the whole uniforms cost $150 or thereabouts, so it's not a lot of money, but I want people to be aware that these teams are out there. I think having a university in a town, like a Sydney university and a chart, we've got two universities here, mm. promoting that is huge for yeah. a town. People will come to towns like Dubbo because of the fact they know there's a pathway post high school years. And I want those players on those sporting teams, someone's playing against them in touch footy, mm. oh, Sydney Uni, how come you got a Sydney Uni top on? Mm. Oh, we've got a School of Rural Health here, oh, what's right. that about? So yeah. just getting people out there in the community to know about that and understand that. Anyway, it's a great facility there. The Wiradjuri Tourism Centre. All right, so we've talked about this before, uh, Matt, it's been uh, part of our discussion now for a while. Are we any closer to getting this thing up and operational? Uh, yes. Okay. Ish. Oh, yes, ish. <laughs> All right, there's a little ish at the end there. So uh, talk us through. what. Where are we up to now in regards to this? Well, we had a council meeting on Thursday night, the last council meeting for the year. Yep. One of the things from a previous resolution of council, if we keep going forward with our latest funding application for the Radry Cultural Tourism Centre, then we have to have a funding strategy for the last bit of this t to put it together. Okay. And it's a complicated process because it started off as getting money from the state government. State government gave money in good faith and yep. said, love your concept, go out and build that. I just don't think the council of the day, and we're talking way back in 2018, mm. did enough work on their budget and looking what it was going to cost. It was nowhere near going to cover what they dreamed of to okay. be built there. And I probably point my finger a little bit at the architects as well because mm. you give architects money and say, here's our budget, here's what we need to build, can you go and design something to that? Oh. And they designed <laughs> something and I think they were paid some of the vicinity of $800,000. Oh I don't know who approved right? that. Yep. But yep. they designed something which was wonderful yep. but there was no way known a mankind it was ever going to be We're going to put a new opera house in here sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just about. Yeah, no. So it's been a complicated one and it, to make it even more complicated, some of the funding we got was tied up around our plaza at the front of Old Dubbo Jail okay. and also our shared pathway that was going along behind Ollie Robbins Oval. Which so is currently under construction. Yeah. Both of those are currently under construction. So hmm. there were those three projects. This was part of some money the state government gave to council, said, okay, give us some projects. They put forward these three projects, got money, fantastic, but they just didn't do 
the budget incorrectly. Mm. They were taking the money before they'd actually worked out how they're going to spend it. It's left to us to solve the problem, which has happened with a few different projects. We don't want to lose the money because mm. this particular project has got $5 million or just and under. And there's a time frame too, isn't it, this? Time frames on that to make it even harder. Yep. Uh, Create New South Wales is a, a $5 million grant that's with that one. So we've got a time frame and we don't like handy back grant money. No, especially $5 million. Dollars. to get it. That's mm-hmm. right. So this, where we're up to at the moment is we've put an application in to the growing regions round one money for the federal government. And the their program is that they'll fund 50% of projects and you've got to put a application to meet all their criteria. One of the things that we've talked about before, which I love, is they're doing an EI process first. Yep. So they're not saying spend all the money to do the whole application, put it in, and then, oh, that was never going to happen. You never mm. had a chance with that. So they've said, and I've spoken to the Minister Catherine King about this, and I love the idea. Step one, put an EOI in. When that EOI goes in, we'll give you some feedback whether or not you should take mm. the time to put the second one in mm. or knock so it out like early. That. That's, that's, that's smart, isn't it? That's You're right. not going waste your money and your resources. That's right. And we've put a couple in. Yeah. We, we actually put four applications in, and we've got a uh, go forward with two of them, and the other two don't go any further. Mm. So that saves mm. our time going further forward with those ones. Good. This particular one, what we're asking for here from the federal government is about $7.2 million. Okay. Okay. Now we've got- So you've already got $5 million from state. Correct. And, and so- you $7.2. That's right. The whole project is about $14.4 million in round numbers. Okay. And so we need to then come up with $2.2 million from somewhere else. Now, is, is, is there any assurance we're going to get this money from federal? No. We've made it through the first round. Okay. We've made it past the EIA process, so that's a good sign. We've got to have our fully completed application in by the 15th of January, 2024. When's, when's the money run out from the state government? We we could get away. We had some discussions with them, and based in with this program, we'd have to have it built by the end of 2025. Okay. And that's so when still the, time. That's right. That's when the growing regions money finishes. The state government, we, we had to have some negotiations there just to change some of the funding around with those three projects, yep. but also to make sure our timeline is going to work. So essentially, December 2025, we've got it all completed okay. by. We think there's no definite date on this, but we think the federal government will make an announcement by about March, maybe middle of March, whether or not it's been successful. Okay. If it is, then we've got to have everything ready to go because it's a fairly tight timeline for a big build, a big project. So with your expression of interest, do you have to have an architectural plan set up for that as well? Well, it's the EOI was really some basic information. Mm. The next application will basically have a lot more detail in it, mm. including our QS, the, the quantity surveying in terms of how much it's going to cost. The DA is being processed by council at the moment, so there's a lot, lot more things happening at the moment. Okay. But we did have a previous resolution that talked about making sure we've got a funding strategy in place. This is from the council's funding? This is from our perspective. Yep. So we need to have some way of saying... It's talking about $2 million roughly. $2.2 million, that's exactly right. So yep. we've got to have some way of coming up with that. Now, there's a fair bit of debate about this at the council meeting, and there was some discussion at the council meeting about whether or not we should hold off on this, not go forward with it, and see if we get the federal and the state government to pay for the whole thing. And in the end, councils decided not to go with that because we think... If we could get this money from the federal government, we think that's a pretty good outcome. Yep. I think it's a, a long, long, long shot to say that we'll have a $15 million, $14.4 million facility 100% funded mm. by state and federal. I There's think, not many of those operations around. No, and so I think if we did wait for that, we'd really be saying we're not going ahead with this project mm. because it's unlikely to get the whole thing funded. Well, you already sort of said the fact there's uh, state government runs on 50-50 basis a lot of these projects. Well, no, federal, this one's... It's federal, sorry. Federal, they want 50, to do 50-50. Yep, yep. And the other thing is I think suggests that both federal and state like to see local contribute. 
you know, it, it's almost like we, we want to assist you, but we want you guys to be contributing as well. Yep. Um, that tends to be the way that a lot of the funding operations tend to run. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, in a lot of this sort of stuff we talk about, there's, they generally like to sort of see local council putting in their little bit into this as well. Well, it certainly gives a stronger argument. And Absolutely. a lot of federal government programs tend to run 50-50. State government programs sometimes don't run like that. You can sometimes mm. get 100% from a state government program. It probably would be smaller projects you'd be doing that with. But yeah. in general... I think it's okay if we get a large chunk of funding from the federal government and then some more from the state government and we put in a little bit ourselves, mm. I think that's okay. And I think it gives us a better chance to show that we've got three levels of contributing mm. when you're going to those other governments. Mm. It's almost, well, the state's putting in, we're putting in, well, you should put in, yeah. or the feds are putting in and we're putting in, yeah, so yeah. the state should put Cause, in. Because what you're talking about here is this would be a tourist attraction for Australia. Like this, this is enormous from the point of view that there's nothing like this anywhere else, is there? I think you'd find very few things like this. There'd probably be other things similar. But in terms of Aboriginal tourism, mm. I think you would have people travel from far and wide, yeah. even internationally, Absolutely. to see this. Yeah, yeah. And certainly from our local tourism, just tourism in general, it would be very powerful. Mm. But from Aboriginal tourism perspective, because oh, so many people huge. say, I want something genuine, authentic, from an Aboriginal perspective, and you don't see a lot of that. No. You go and buy boomerangs that are made in China. Yep. You just you want to see something authentic. So I think this would be really powerful, really yep. important. So we essentially agreed in the end that the way we would fund this would be an internal loan. So we've got money sitting in investments now. We take out $2.2 million out of one of those investments, yep. and we basically put that towards this particular program so yep. we could actually fund it, mm. and we'd forego some interest on what we'd have in that investment. So yep. Sounds like a smart two, idea. Well, 2.2 million. We had the various funding options in there as part of this report, but 2.2 million funded internally mm. would be okay. And again, we'd forego somewhere in the vicinity of maybe half a million dollars in interest, so probably 2.7 million dollars. What are you going to get back though from the point of view once it's built? The potential for what you're going to get as a city is enormous. I'm suggesting it'd be a lot more than half a million dollars. Well, I hope so, and I'm okay with a. F- $14.4 million bill that costs us $2.2 yeah, million. That's, that's right. not, not a bad ratio in terms yeah. of that. So we'll put that in. Uh, Council's resolved to go ahead with, with that from that perspective. We'll mm. complete the application and we've got all our ducks lined up in a row. Just to throw another spin in the works, mm. this Growing Regions program, there was some discussion about waiting until round two, whenever round two will be. There's no announcement about round two, definitely. But there is also potential if you partner up with an Aboriginal organisation the federal government has said they'll do a 90-10 split, which oh, is very unusual. Okay. And we did actually think about that option when we discussed this before. Yeah. What we would have to do is we'd have to find an Aboriginal organisation somewhere here locally yeah. that has the capability to, to basically run a $14.4 million build program. Mm, mm. They'd also have to have the 10%. So they'd have to have $1.44 million mm. sitting there in loose change that they could contribute to the project to get the 90%. And we went through that process and we did have some discussions around that with some Aboriginal organisations, but we didn't really have anyone that we said, yep, there's one, there's an obvious one that we could partner up with yep. and they've got one point, call it 1.5, they've got 1.5 million sitting there and they'll be able to run this project of this size. Mm. So in the end, and let's say they came back and said to council, oh, well, you contribute the 10% and then we'll put the application in. Well, 1.5 or 2.2, mm. not a lot of difference. Not a big difference there. No, that's that's right. right. So in the end, we said, let's go ahead with this. We're as close as we've ever been to getting there, especially the fact that we got a positive on the first step in the EOI. Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead with it and keep our fingers crossed and yeah. hopefully we'll get that because I think this would be an absolutely unbelievable attraction. Oh, it'd be magic. Now, Matt, it's an interesting one here. Um, 
one of the councillors during the week, during the uh, the council meeting, uh, put put forward a question of notice in regards to uh, the 3D printing block. Um, I can only imagine that did this council have some concerns in regards to what's happening over there at the 3D printing block, or as I like to refer to it as the whiz bang uh, toilet block. <laughs> Uh, no, council doesn't have any concerns at all. Council's quite happy and okay. quite comfortable with it and uh, very impressed with the whole process. Yeah. Uh, one of the councils did bring forward. So we, we've got this part of a council meeting. Every council's got this concept where you can have questions on notice. Mm-hmm. So you might have a notice of motion where you want to make a change and do something, but you might want to just highlight something in the community. And mm. a way you can do that is by having a question on notice. A council submits that, enough time for the staff to actually generate an answer that's got all the information about it and then that goes to a council meeting just so the community's aware. So, for example, a couple of questions here I'll read out where the questions came from from a councillor. First one was, with the design of the 3D printed toilet block, was consideration given to a design that incorporated separate individual cubicles with doors that open directly to the outside rather than to the fully enclosed building with a single common access for each of separate male and female areas? Because there's been some talk around about the 3D printed toilet block being in inverted commas, old style and the new style are single cubicles. Mm. So that was one of the questions. The other next question was, was it established if it was possible to 3D print an amenities block with separate individual cubicles that, with doors that open directly to the outside? So again, that single cubicle concept. And then also asked regarding the likely layout of the soon-to-be-replaced amenities block in Victoria Park, because we're doing one there, uh, is the preferred design separate individual cubicles, again, that cubicle design, or a solid, fully enclosed building with a single common access, etc. Mm. So mm. focus on those couple of areas. The staff responses, and again, these come to council, it's not something you debate the responses. We take the response at a council meeting to be factual. Yep. We assume that our staff are not making up answers. They've got the questions on notice. They've had time to research it. So in essence, the answers that were given to those questions were that First of all, the original expression of interest indicated that the contractor could supply design and layout for the actual toilet design. So the contractor could have come forward with a single cubicle or the one that we've got over there. And the the select tender scope of works required the structure have a minimum of five female cubicles, two male cubicles, and at least room for two people to stand up with urinals and a disabled toilet. There was no specific requirement in the tender for individual cubicles. Now, keep in mind, if you remember... The last council put this budget forward for this particular toilet block, and yep. the budget they had was three hundred thousand dollars. We spent slightly over that, yep. but if it was down that path, it would have been more expensive. I'll get to more of that in a moment. Mm. With the next question was, uh, yes, it was the, the answer from our staff. Yes, it was established that it was possible to have a design where individual cubicles with doors that open directly to the outside could have been done with three D printing. The design for this would have exceeded the project budget. Right, because it uh, would have been it would have been bigger, I suggest, and it, it would have, and would have been probably a hell of a lot more. I don't know what what's, what's the sort of the phrasing. Um, they say the, the cost effectiveness would have blown right out. Exactly right, and that's the problem. When we specify five female, two male cubicle, and stand up urinals, mm. you put all that into single cubicles, mm. you end up with a much larger footprint. That's, that's a big operation. It is, isn't like it? That. That's yes. right. Yes. And that much larger footprint, then also mm. you end up with a lot more expense. So we were trying to stick to a budget. So. You could 3D print, so it gets confusing. People out there saying, oh, they're 3D printed toilet, it's not single cubicles. Well, mm. it could have been single cubicles. You can 3D print whatever you want. You can, yep. single, you can print single cubicles or the design we've got over there, but it's much more cost effective. What was interesting at the council meeting was that one of the Wellington councillors stood up and said the single cubicles that have been 
created or uh, erected back in 2019 in Cameron Park in Wellington, mm. and again, I'm paraphrasing here, but are a disaster in the Wellington community mm. because they used to have the style of toilets where you walk in, you'd have multiple cubicles for male and female, and they would have buses that would stop uh, stop there in Wellington and people would get off the bus and they'd go to the toilet there and then they'd go into some of the shops and they'd mm. spend some time in Wellington. And they said once the single cubicles were built there that replaced the old one, so they took multiple toilets and replaced it with a single male, single female and a disabled toilet, and then buses stopped and they found there was a line-up outside these yeah, toilets. Absolutely. Because it's not just going to the toilet part that's an interesting part of that whole concept yep. because – when you go into a single cubicle, the basin's inside as well. Mm. So you go to the toilet with the door closed. Yep. You're then washing your hand with the door closed. So yep. you can't have people using the toilet while you're even in there. That takes a lot longer to do all of that. And then you come out and then the next person goes in. Yep. So they said they had buses stopping and there were these lineups of people mm. and then buses don't stop anymore. Mm. So we've had a number of questions. I certainly have had a number of questions from people in Wellington saying, yep. can you please build another toilet in Cameron Park because these ones here aren't doing the job. Now, remember that these ones cost about $300,000 in yep. round numbers as well yep. down in, in Cameron Park. So you've got a similar cost, about 310000 I think it was, and that was back in 2019. Yep. So again, building prices have gone up a lot more. So you've got fewer toilets and you've spent more money, again, from a budget perspective. And it pulls down, doesn't it, like in regards to intent and purpose? Uh, what's, what's the intent and purpose of, of building this? Well, obviously, Cameron Park scenario, the, the, the focus, I'm assuming, must have been, oh, we, we're going all out for safety factors must have been the case. But they forgot about, I suggest here, what the how that works in the feasibility of people actually coming in and the usability of it for things like the buses and the people coming in there to, to do their thing. Um, so getting back to this in regards to the, this situation here, is, is council then thinking about, with the new toilets they're looking at building, are they looking at then considering going with the single toilet use for the, the other one or would they go with the other with the, the current design? Well, the answer that we got from the staff in this question that was came through, that staff are currently developing a community engagement program for the project. Mm. The program will be undertaken early 2024 and will create the opportunity for the community to provide feedback and input on designs in line with our budget and cost-benefit analysis of options. So essentially, you'll be looking at some feedback from the community. Mm. Do you really want single cubicle or mm. would you prefer more toilets? Yep. And I'm a bit confused. Some of the commentary I've heard around the single toilet versus the, the ones we've got there is that safety of kids going to the toilet. Now, I've got male mm. and female children and they were, they're all adults now, but when they were younger, you'd go to the toilet. And I know that when we'd be at the toilet, we would go and uh, if I had my daughters with me, and they were young enough, I would just take them into the male toilet with me. If my wife was somewhere with my son, yep. then she'd just take him into the toilet with her. I, I don't think parents hmm. typically would send children that are very young yep. into a toilet by themselves where potentially there was someone in there that might be inclined to be taking photos or doing things they yep. shouldn't be doing in those in those toilets. So a lot of the commentary around these, and I've heard this silly term called pedo-friendly toilets, mm, mm. And, and I just don't really understand that. If you're there looking after your children, yep. you're surely you're going to be there with your child, yep. not seeing them off and saying, have a nice day and hopefully you'll come back okay. Yep. So yep. I really don't accept that that is an argument for... I agree. And, and is, is there any data out there from, I don't know, from police that, that can sort of maybe can be thrown into this argument and debate and discussion in regards to the best type of toilets. Um, like, a might be a worthwhile discussion with, uh, is it Chief Inspector Chin down there? Tim, Tim Chin, Chin, Chin yeah, uh, yeah. To talk about maybe, you know, how many 
incidents of uh, that have they had in the toilet systems here in Dubbo? Um, I don't yeah, know. That's a good like, question. Is, is there I'm something not, there that may be able to sort of to go into the community engagement discussion? Yeah, I'm not aware of, of any of that. It's a mm. good question for, for us to ask the police as part of that engagement process. But one of the things that – one of the questions that was asked during the week from the media to me was that is the public toilet – do we have a public toilet policy about standard designs? Mm. A single cubicle is going to be our standard design going forward or the design that we've got at, at the Lions Park? And – Essentially, our toilets that we build are built that comply with all the relevant standards and all the, the, the kind of building codes and such. The main one is the disabled toilet, Australian Standard 1428.1, mm. which is a design for access and mobility. And I even saw questions about that where people said the disabled toilet, the entrance isn't wide enough for the disabled toilet. And of course, it's. We'll have to meet a standard. It does. And of course, we're going to build it to that standard. Mm. It's actually wider, it's 70 mil wider oh, than the standard. Yeah. So it's silly stuff like that that goes on. Commentary around. and facts are two different things, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So I don't see any issue with those toilets. I've never really had that issue when people are going there and, and taking photos in toilets because they're that open style. People mm. go to lots of places and, and do things that are wrong. Mm. I don't think this is really encouraging them. So to me, it's been questionable, the whole process, the whole debate. There's been some little cracks on there as well. But when it was first built, one of the things we talked about was that concrete will crack, let's mm. leave it for a while, mm. and then we'll paint that at some stage in the very near future. Yep. That was always the, the concept there. Let's see how it goes. Let's, let's see how it, it settles. That's right. Say. Let's see how it settles yeah. and see how it performs. And then at yeah. some stage in the future, we'll paint it. But once we paint it, you won't even see those cracks. Mm. They're, they're mm. hairline cracks. They're not structural cracks. But it's a bit like the RFS, Aviation mm. Centre of Excellence. When the minister said, we're leading the way, mm. just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean you don't do it. Yep. You say, let's lead the way. And I've heard some people say that that because no one else has done 3D printing in, in this nation, we shouldn't be doing it. Well, that's... That, Absolutely flawed argument. Absolutely. It's done in all sorts of places around the world. There's no reason we shouldn't be doing this here yep. in Dubbo. And I think Nothing wrong with being an innovator. Absolutely. Council Code of Conduct. Um, now, during the council meeting, uh, the quarterly report came through in regards to any complaints uh, against uh, councillors. And please just say there's been zero to report. Zero to report. It's an interesting process, this reporting process. Part 11.1 of the procedures of the Administration of the Model Code of Conduct says that you need to report each year on complaint stats that right. come through to council. Okay. And as councillors, we actually said, well... So you table that at the meetings, do you? That's right. Once a year, you've got... That's all councillors across the state. Mm. But one of the things that we talk about at council is, well, that's not good enough. We think the community should know more regularly than that. Mm. Let's get this report on a quarterly basis. Mm. So this latest report that went through to council was and the quarters aren't lining up with financial years or current right, okay, years. Yep. The first quarter is a September through to November. So September, October, November is yep. the first quarter. And so we, we do it on a quarterly basis. So the, the mm. year, if you like, is goes from September, the first September through to the end of so August. this is all reports, even vexatious ones. This is the problem. And this is the problem that I have. Mm. When you have the report, you'll get a, a table as part of the report that says how many complaints were received, how many of those referred to the conduct reviewer, how many have been finalised at the preliminary assessment stage? How many investigated by conduct reviewer? How many had outcomes of investigations? How many were reviewed by the Office of Local Government? Mm. And then how much did it cost us? Yeah, so right. they're all the fields that you've got to have in this report that goes through. You could try and make a council look bad and you could go and lodge 50 complaints. Mm. And even though they were ridiculous, vexatious, had no basis at all on mm. them, we would see in the column complaints received 50. 
Mm. And then people would say, wow, mm. that council, they're, they're, terrible they're not going bunch, very good, lot. are they? Hey, you know? Look at them. Yeah, so I don't love the idea that the number of complaints received is reported. Mm. Ones that maybe were referred or ones that you had outcomes from, that type of thing, I have no problem with that at all mm. because at mm. least it's gone through a process. But just to say that they were reported, mm. to me, is a bit disappointing. Yep. As it turns out, in the first quarter of this year, September, October, November, then there were zero complaints received by council in terms of code of conduct. So that's great. That's good. Yeah, well but done. it could change next that's quarter. That's right. Yeah, exactly different. right. Next quarter, you could get 20. Who knows? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then we'd have those various stats. We'll talk about those in another three months' time. Yeah. This is an interesting little one. The Dubbo Regional Sports Council Playing Field Improvement Fund. Um, it looks like uh, council's come to a decision here that they're going to uh, financially support some of the sporting groups in town, uh, on a 50-50 basis uh, in regards to any, I suppose, additions they want to do to buildings or uh, infrastructural work or whatever, I suggest. Um, I imagine there's some sort of proposal process they'd go through to to uh, try to access these sort of funds. But talk us through it. What's, what's happening here? It's been going for some years. It was actually stopped during COVID. Some of those funds that mm-hmm. were put towards this were put towards COVID-associated work that needed to be done. But it's, it's back and running now. So essentially, sporting clubs, sporting associations can apply to the Dubbo Regional Sports Council, yep. but it's the funding that comes from us ultimately, yep. and they can apply for 50%, up to 50% of a project they're doing towards some sort of project on a sporting facility, and then that project effectively or that upgrade is still our asset. So, it so might if they want be, to put a new canteen facility or something like that, or that's right. upgrade their kitchen. And the, the thing I like about it is it's – that 50-50 concept that we yeah. talked about before. So you're actually getting some contribution from the sporting club and yep. some from council. It's still council's asset ultimately. So mm. it still goes towards improving that, but it lets clubs go out and improve things if they mm. like. We've only got $20,000 in the budget annually for it. So not a lot of money there, but we had three applications and we don't always do it in two rounds, but we had three applications that came to just over $10,000. So we'll do a round two now. Yep. But the three that we got, one was from the Diversity Junior Rugby League Association and they want to do some repair of the portable grandstands at the Apex Oval Outfield. So again, okay. good yep. for Dubbo, good for Junior Rugby League, so that's yep. fantastic. And so we'll give them $5,915.56. Yep. That was how much they requested on and that one. And they'll put the uh, other 50% in. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, no, they're putting more than 50% on that one, so they only requested $5,900. Oh, okay. So, the right. total project was $17,746. Right, yeah. but they can request up to up to 50%. 50%. Okay, yeah, that's right. gotcha. So they can go yeah. under as well if they need to. Right. Um, the Cowboys, one can count. Cowboys Rugby League Football Club, they asked for money for the Canard Park PA system for oh, yeah. upgrading that. Yep. So they'll get $2,866 for that one. And then again, the Wellington Cowboys Rugby League Football Club asked for some money for a commercial fridge at Canard Park Canteen. Right. And that'll be $1,700 we'll give them for that one. Yep. So again, all good projects, improve those sporting facilities. Yeah. And again, I like the fact that it's not just handing or holding your hand out, it's yes. actually you making And they take some ownership of that, aren't they, by yeah, doing exactly. that? Now, this one, uh, again, the local government remuneration, you've got to sort of slow down and saying that one, remuneration tribunal 2024 annual review. What's this about? This is a request from the local remuneration tribunal to Mm -hmm. say, give us some feedback. How are we going? How how are we doing the job in terms of setting the range of allowances? So who is this group in, in sort of in layman's terms for people? It's a tribunal that sets how much 
counsellors can be paid with different councils and the range of amounts that you can be paid at those various okay, councils. Okay, right, yeah. So they're asking for feedback. Sometimes some councillors said, you're not paying councils enough, can you give us more money, which mm. sounds a little bit self-serving. One of the things that I've struggled with forever has been the fact that the tribunal gives a range of allowances for councillors, depending on the size of the council, mm. and then it goes to council at a council meeting to make a decision about how much we are paid. Are yeah. you happy with your pay this year? Actually, I'd like a little bit more. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, our, let's go back to them and ask for a bit more. One of our councillors pointed out the fact that we are so concerned about making sure we don't have conflicts of interest, making sure we declare anything, making sure we leave the mm. room if we've got any conflict. You can't get much more of a conflict mm. than saying how much if you're get personally going to be paid. This seems to be a government thing across the board, though, doesn't it? Like state does the same thing, federal does the same thing as well. They, they seem to vote on how much they want to get. Well, no, they do go to external tribunals. Oh, did they? Yeah. And they, I always thought it was internally done through a vote. No, they typically set the amounts from, they give the power to an external tribunal right. to set those amounts. Okay. Which kind of happens here, except they then bring it back to council. And if a councillor wants to be a bit of a hero and make a name for themselves, then they say, oh, I'm voting against that wage rise, mm. assuming the majority of councillors are going to vote for it. Hmm. They still get the wage rise, so <laughs> so they can look like a bit of a I hero. I get both. That's I, right. I get the glory of standing up for the common man, but also get it as well. That's yes. right. So it does seem a bit unfair to do that. So hmm. there was a process to, to put a submission in, so we took that through the council, and basically our submission said, in, well, we'll say, I've got actually sent it off yet, but the decision was only made on Thursday, but the decision was, please take any decision about how much councillors are paid out of the hands of councillors. Hmm. In other words... You're the tribunal, hmm. you make a decision, and then that's just the wage. Yeah. End of well, story. That's how it works in, in the real world, so to speak. You know, that's how that's it's, right. We all, in that sort of case, they turn around and they say, Radio, there's been a 3% wage rise this year, and uh, that's it. You're going to get that. Yeah, exactly right. So I don't know whether they take much notice of that. It's been mm. that way for a long time. They might get more than one council putting a submission in along those same lines, but certainly that okay. was our request. Don't give us the decision to make. It's mm. always a bit tough. And it's probably not good governance to say, mm. councillors, how much you want to be paid? Mm. As you said, mm. I'll have some more things. Yeah, exactly right. Now, this one's uh, it's interesting to sort of come back up again. Um, now, this is in regards to the old Dubbo Bowling Club. This, this was the, the link there with the RSL and council and how that uh, council gave, there was a land swap sort of deal that took place. Uh, it, it's been back on the table again now. I'm assuming here, as part of this discussion, that council has brought this back on to maybe look at it as, as an option to possibly purchase the, the area, which is the old Dubbo City Bowling Club. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's interesting. You go back to the, the land swap you mentioned there. Mm. We used to have a bartering system hundreds of years ago, thousands yes. of years ago. Yes, and then I'll, some, I'll give you three apples for those two oranges sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that yes. sort of thing. And someone worked out that maybe having currency made it easier to have these transactions rather than having a couple of products that just happened to be ones that you wanted yes, yes. and then deciding on that value. I was never comfortable with this land swap deal and mm. it had a few things that I was uncomfortable about or made me uncomfortable about it. For a start, there was the Dubbo City Bowling Club, the old Dubbo City Bowling Club, 74 Windy Warrior Street, or we often call it the Greens. Yes. And there was that building that the Dubbo Royal Club bought for, I'm not sure exactly what reason they bought it, but they mm. bought that club, maybe to, to take those members and move them to one of the other clubs, but whatever, they bought that. So they mm. owned that building, they owned that, and then, as people know, they basically shut that down and it's not running anymore, it's just a mm. vacant building. 
We've got land in Keswick Estate. We've got various land in Keswick Estate that's used for various things, typically residential development, but there'll be some other things that'll happen up there. Might be clubs, might be extra shopping facilities because you'll have a large population up there. Mm, mm. The last council made the decision that the parcel of land that the RSL Club wanted to build a new smaller club on was just the same value as the old, the Greens, Mm. the old WC Bowling Club. So those two just had to be identical value, so they entered a contract to swap those two. So council could have... apples and two oranges deal. Yeah, that's right. Council would have the the Greens and the RSL Club would have the piece of of land up at Keswick. So that's the first issue I have is Mm. that are you sure those two are identical in value? Mm. So that's why we that have real estate agents and, and and land valuers and all New South Wales uh, land valuation group and all that sort of stuff. They put value on these things. They do, but also the value of something is what someone's prepared to pay for it. Mm. That's the ultimate value. Well, that's for true it. too. That's right. So yeah. that was the first problem I had that the, the two values happened to be identical. The second problem I had was that there didn't seem to be a strategic reason to buy the Greens. When mm. council bought that, what were you going to do with it? Well, you know, it seemed like a good spot next to the Western Plains Cultural Centre, around number two, number three oval there, across from number one. So that seemed like a good enough reason, but I didn't ever find a business case mm. for that. And even if you're doing a swap, there's still a cost associated with that. What mm. did you pay for that? Mm. Well, you pay for it whatever that other land was worth that you owned previously. So yep. buying things without some sort of strategic reason, I'm talking about big things here, mm. we're talking about things that are worth potentially millions of dollars. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. So that was the second problem I had with it. The third problem I had with it was just plain silly. They did the contract, they did the land swap, but they made it conditional on a whole bunch of things happening at Keswick, which were going to cost council more money. So they're talking about part of a road construction that had to be done for yep. that. They had to do some zoning changes. So there a whole range of things that council had to do, which incurred more costs as part of that whole deal. So and even if, if these things weren't done, there was the option to renege on the deal. Exactly right. So I'll get to that in a moment. But mm. even if you worked out those two land values were identical, mm. by the time council spent all this extra money on these various things, then they're in a, a very poor situation. Now, I'm not having a go at the RSL Club here at all. The RSL Club... Oh, they, they bought into the deal. That's, that's, that's the option. They, they were going along with the yeah, deal. Yeah. I, what I was most disappointed about was the process from the last council to go ahead with all of this. If you wanted the parcel of land at the Greens, and if the RSL Club wanted a parcel land at Keswick Estate, then if that was a scenario, then just sell each one, and mm. especially with this conditional pr- approach, that mm. was bad, but just sell it. If you want to buy the Greens, go to the RSL Club and say, I want to buy the Greens, and here's yep. a value, we'll prepare to pay, or go to auction, or whatever. If you want those two parcels of land to, to change ownership, go and buy them separately, yep. individually. And the thing about that is, of course, is if you identify something there, you think, well, that's going to cost me extra to sort of have to do this, it's going to cost me extra to have to do that. Well, that becomes part of that costing evaluation, doesn't it? As yeah. you say, how much is it worth? Well, that's a valuation between two people to determine. Well, I'll pay $100,000 rather than two hundred because I've got to do $100,000 worth of work on that land first. That's right. And then when we wanted to lease out, because we kind of had effective ownership of the mm. Greens, but we didn't really own it. So we leased it out to the Electoral Commission, for example, for the state government election to use as their headquarters. Mm. But we had to get permission from the RSL Club to sublease that mm. to the Electoral Commission. We then put it out an expression of interest process, you may remember at the end of last year, we invited people to come forward and lease that for a period of time because we weren't going to do anything effective with it in the short term. And we had a number of applications came in. New South Wales Rugby won that process. Again, we had to get permission from the RSL Club because we didn't technically own that Mm. building. Mm. As it turned out, as you mentioned there, the RSL Club legally rescinded on that deal, which Mm. they had the option to do. A whole range of things had to be satisfied. Ultimately, the RSL Club, in analysing that block of land, after they'd started this process, found some things on that block of land that would make it more expensive for them to build their club, and they went, oh, we don't like it anymore. Mm. So 
we'll give it back, thanks. Yeah. Which was their right and option to do. No problem from a legal perspective and no problem the way the contracts were set up. But again, mm. I would have felt very Question uncomfortable the having... the how it was set up in the first place. That's yeah. right. To me, if there was a land swap, if you were doing that, you just say, the land swap occurs on this day, mm. end of story, the, the deal's completed. Yep. It dragged on. 2020 this was entered mm. into. It dragged on till this year before it was finally rescinded. Mm. And again, if you want that parcel of land, you just buy it. And you buy it knowing all those things that have mm. got to happen with it. So having all these conditions on it sounded hairy to me from the start. Yep. So that's rescinded. That deal is off the table now, finished, completed, end of story. So now... If we want the greens, then we can go out and buy it. If you know, we can pay enough money for it and mm. all the rest of it, the RSL Club have got an expression of interest process out right now to go and make application to purchase the greens. So essentially, council, and this is part of the confidential part of the council meeting, so I won't talk about the individual value or the individual discussions, but the outcome of that was that we will submit an application in that EI process to buy the greens. Now, again, whatever we want, want to use it for, how we might use it strategically, all those questions in there again. I won't talk about the confidential discussion, but yeah. ultimately we'll offer a value. If the RSL Club accept that value, then we'll purchase their greens and that's done. As far as Keswick's concerned, what the RSL Club there, that's a separate argument, a separate discussion, mm. and that's how mm. it should be. Yeah. It shouldn't be The two shouldn't be intertwined or linked in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Mm. So, so I suppose based on that then, so the RSL Club, from the sound of things, uh, they don't really have a business plan set up right now for the Greens area. No, they, they, I don't think they want that. I don't think mm. they need it. It's basically they'll get rid of that at some point in time in the near future okay. via that EOI process and mm. they'll sell that and, and move on. Okay. Well, Matt, that's been another big program. And, of course, it's time now for your Limerick of the Week. So... What are we looking at this week? I thought of you appearing in the videos at the Old Dubbo Jail. So oh, I did could, you now? I couldn't help doing something about the Old Dubbo Jail because <laughs> nice. I do think it's quite special. It is. As we talked there. about, it's incredibly special, this setup. So this week it's all about the Old Dubbo Jail. Lovely. So here we go. And remember that the life of crime is what the new exhibition's called and yes. what the book is called as well. So, life of crime at the jail does portray many repeat fenders from yesterday. Their stories untold with expressions quite bold revealing lives that sadly went astray. Oh, very nice. Well done. Well, mate, this is my last little program for this year. I wish you a Merry Christmas, and to all the listeners out there, a Merry Christmas as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Until next year, everyone, you take care. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Straight from the Mare's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.